0: From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle.
1: This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and with me today is a colleague here at DAU. He's a man whom we call upon often in matters of design and development, especially when we're trying to bring insight and understanding to any kind of a special challenge. Design problems abound in the learning world. That's the first thing you learn. The the uh, E in e-learning doesn't stand for easy. And we're often at a loss as to how to translate those things into elegant solutions, the the kind of solutions that users like. Now, Josh Flores is my guest. He is adept at solving such problems in ways that work for users. Now, the industry jargon for what we're describing is UXD, or User Experience Design, Today, I want to catch some of Josh's thinking on the subject. But first of all, Josh, welcome to The Learning Circle. Hey, Anthony. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm very excited to have you. Josh, let's just get started. I want to get kind of a day-in-the-life perspective from you. Tell us a little about your title, your role, the kinds of things that you find yourself working on from day to day. So uh, I am the program manager for job support tools at DAU. Um, which is a
0: an interesting title. But in reality, I do a lot of user experience design. Uh, I work a lot on the dau.edu website, and uh, people come to me frequently for help with uh, certain digital products like different areas of the website and also uh, building individual job support tools to help people back on the job. But it, it generally boils down a lot to designing products that people use.
1: Now, we hear a lot about UX design. People define it different ways, so there's a little bit of a problem there. If you could take a stab at your own description or definition of UXD, what would that be? Well, user experience
0: design is not necessarily new or fancy or catchy. It's just a term that's describing something that we've always seen. Um, And to me, user experience design is the holistic design of every user interaction that will happen when someone is interacting with a product or a service or something. So it is the, the combination of every single touch point that they might have to give you like a really good example of that. It would be when you walk into the Apple store, when you walk into the Apple store, someone greets you. And then what do you do? well uh you know they they put your name on a little list and then you go and you start to look around at the other products that's part of the user experience design and and there's every thoughtfully designed experience has been designed <laughs> for for lack of a better term
1: no, no it's a great answer and I, yeah. I like what you said it's it isn't necessarily new and and that's what happens a lot is we find new ways to express things that are actually really old that they're, Mm -hmm. you know, it's the universal design process later. I want to mention something about Addy and we have all these different phrases we use, but a lot of them boil down to that universal design process. And perhaps we're emphasizing a certain aspect of it. Mm -hmm. I think user experience design has a lot to say about an empathic approach to putting yourself in a user's shoes. And then I, I love the Apple example because it speaks to brand type of concerns, like w- the reputation that you achieve. At all those touch points, yeah. you know, your, your brand is like the things that you do every day in every way from having an email signature on your communications to uh, let's say it's stuff in a store and your pop up displays are falling down or your people aren't answering the the phones politely. You know, it's all those things. And of course, Apple is famous for really thinking through this type of these pathways that users mm-hmm. take. So I love that. Love that. I actually have my own way of thinking about user experience design. It's it's along the lines of what I just described. I think of it as kind of a reconciliation of the brand promise. Okay. Now we are we are DAU people. DAU has a brand, right? But we're reconciling what is the promise that we are making to users and what are the user expectations? So the place where those meet, to me, that's kind of where we're solving our user experience design. With that type of thing in mind, what brand attributes are you trying to bring out? What are you trying to assure so that users have a good experience when they walk away from a DAU interaction?
0: When I do user experience design, it it really that is a huge umbrella. Anytime I'm designing anything, I'm thinking, what are the touch points here? So when someone is clicking on a button, does that button look like a button? What does it do when I click it? Um, What's it going to do on if I'm looking at that button on a phone? So to be honest, uh, when I'm designing things, I'm not really thinking about DAU. I'm thinking about what are the common design patterns that are used everywhere else? And the reason why I do that is because there is this law of UX, and I don't know the specific name of it, but the the rule goes sort of like this. It's that everybody spends time on uh, websites and products that aren't yours. So it is incumbent upon you to make sure that your product behaves like the rest of the world. So when I'm bringing my design philosophy to things, I'm trying to make stuff that we come up with be consistent with other design patterns that people are seeing in
1: real life. I like that a lot. I just had an interaction, I think it was yesterday, Mm -hmm. and I was speaking to the person next to me saying how I don't expect it to behave that way because whenever you are presented with this type of thing anywhere else, you expect to click something and it opens up and it reveals more choices and it's very intuitive in that manner. Mm -hmm. So I totally get what you're saying. And I also get that you're you're really working at a very specific, very granular level. So maybe the way I'm pitching that question is a, a little too uh, visionary of you know mm-hmm. uh, fulfilling the brand. But we at DAU we do we kick around terms like frictionless and all this type of stuff that is high level. But what you're talking about, you know, a button being a button uh, is very important. So totally get that, and I love. The idea that we meet expectations that are set in in other places that are the the best practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, this should be an obvious statement. So I'll just be Captain Obvious right now. User experience design begins with users. It's supposed to be informed by users. The reality, though, is that, you know, we can really find ourselves just in the workaday reality where we are off to the races. Someone fired off the starter pistol and we have deadlines. We've got uh, pressures that are pushing us. And the person who is left out of all the analysis and design, ironically, is the user. Do you see this happen a lot? It can, uh, depending on where you work and who
0: you're creating things for. Um, if you don't involve the user, well, if you're creating a product that people are going to use and you don't involve the user, you're going to run into problems. The reason why you need want to involve the users you need to make sure that you're creating something that people are A, going to use, B, be able to use, and C, is going to deliver value to them. Otherwise, your, your product will probably not have that much of a reason for existing. And the caveat to all of this is that user research is... Many different things. It's not just talking to users. It's observing them in their natural habitat. It's watching what they do through analytics. So there's lots of different ways to triangulate user behavior. Um, but if you're creating something for them to use, you they really need to be at the core of, of your design strategy.
1: Absolutely. I've seen you elaborate on this idea of what the consequences are when you exclude the user. I think you've spoken to the phenomenon of quote development without users. Tell us what that looks like.
0: Yeah, development without users. I came up with this term called development roulette. So imagine you have this idea for uh, e learning on a on a on a refrigerator screen. You know how some uh, smart refrigerators have screens, right? So you're like, yeah, let's uh, let's develop e learning courses that run on on refrigerator screens. So. You come up with this idea, you design a course, you get some developers to create it, you spend six months doing it, then you release it, and then you wonder why people aren't using it. Well, I know this is an extreme example, but if you've never talked to your users and observed the environment where they're doing things, you might not, uh, you, you know, you wouldn't know that that is a really terrible idea. But the only way you'd be able to find that out is by testing these assumptions through user experience, you know, uh, interviews and observation. A far much better way to do that would be to observe users where they are actually taking training. If you find out that, you know, users are completely interested only in, you know, taking courses on a laptop, then that should be your bread and butter and not the refrigerator screen because you think it's a cool idea. So really what it gets down to is... You start off with an assumption, and then you need to test that assumption with real people before going forward.
1: Yeah, you know, the smart refrigerator example, I I can't even relate to. I still have the guy who shows up with a block of ice and sticks it into the, uh, you know, the the top compartment. (laughs) You know, you can testing is it is very, very important because you can go down blind alleys and spend a lot of money. One of these things you hear a lot, someone has an idea, they have a business idea Mm -hmm. and they're thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to have to like build an app and we'll we'll try this out. And meanwhile, instead of like spending, you know, 40 grand in six months or whatever it would take to build that app, they could just like send out emails to people and see what kind of or do a survey and see what responses they get and test an idea before they waste time and money on it. So I love this idea. You're kind of connecting it to really how the the scientific process works, where you've got a problem and you come up with a hypothesis, right? I think it, I think it kind of works that way.
0: It does. And like, you can't expect every vision to come out of user needs. If you ask people what they want, people usually don't know what they want. So it's a little bit of both, right? So you have to have, maybe you have a product vision, you have this idea for something new. That's that's good. But you also need to sort of validate that that
1: idea is good. And that's where users come in. So Josh, if we're going to start with users and and really inform the process that you're about to embark on, how do you pick their brains? How, how do you extract that? And, and how do you move forward so that you can sort of look before you leap? So without
0: giving an example and trying to get us bogged down in that, what I would say is that Whatever it is that you're doing, you're usually trying to solve some sort of a problem or you're trying to improve something, something like that. What you would do is you'll first take that problem statement and then you're going to go out to users that are representative of you know the groups of people that are going to be using your product or going to be... Uh, You know, helping solve the problem. And you would just try to learn a lot from them about it. And so you would would ask them questions like, hey, what's going on with this? Tell me a little bit more about that. And the way that I would explain this is that at first, as a researcher, your view of the problem is extremely blurry. You don't know very much. And so you're asking very, very broad questions. But what you'll find is that after you talk to three or four people, they all start to sort of begin to say the same things. And when that happens, the image of what you're trying to fix becomes much more clear. And you have a better idea of what people are going through. And that will lead you towards the path of creating a design that's going to make a difference.
1: Yeah, it sounds a little bit like cops interrogating people, how they you know, at, at first it is murky mm-hmm. and then that you, you begin to see commonalities, you see things that they may look contradictory, but they then that you see how they complement each other. Mm-hmm. And then um, you have this convergence that you achieve so that at least you can define the problem at that point. And then I usually, I know in, in my case, when I'm solving problems, it's, I, I think of it in terms of those interrogatives, I'm I'm doing all the convergent type of questions then when i search the solution i can get very divergent and kind of blue sky well how might we solve this problem Mm -hmm. um how does it look for you
0: yeah it's there there's a really good graphic out there uh it's called discovery and framing And it's, uh, it it works kind of like that. So in the beginning, you start off with an impetus for your your project that your stakeholder hands you, and then you go out and you do lots of user research and you start off and you go extremely broad with all the things. And so you're looking at a wide variety of problems, and then you begin to prioritize those problems. And then you look at a wide variety of solutions, and then you prioritize those solutions. And that, that leads you towards a product.
1: Now, while you're doing that, okay, the reality in our world is that you've got different agents in the mix. You've got key players. Who are those people typically, and how do you kind of balance it and not get yourself off track from actually solving the problem?
0: Well, there's a couple of key players. It's usually the stakeholder. That's one of them. And then there are users, and that is by far I think one of the most important. If you're if you're creating something that is going to try and solve a problem, you, you really got to involve the users the most in that because they're going to be the ones that are using it at the end of the day. Um, it's not always going to be your stakeholders. Your stakeholders are interested in the success of the product and the you know the overall outcome, but it's it's the users they're going to be um, actually engaging with it you know day in and day out, and, and those are the people that you really got to primarily focus on when you're doing design.
1: Yeah. It's like you've got your customer. Usually that's the stakeholder. It's some (laughs) variation on the customer who they want to build this product or widget. But in order to have that be a success, you've got to involve the users because let's say it was an app that you're going to build that they all hated. Well, that doesn't help your customer. And sometimes you've got to help the customer. You kind of have to disabuse them of certain notions of what they think they need. And you can only do that in this process where... You're speaking to a lot of users, and you know that what you're coming up with works. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask you about that interview process. Obviously, I'm very interested in interviews and conversation. What we're doing right now is kind of an act of it. I'm sort of uh, putting you in that chair. But when you're doing this with users, I imagine there are certain things that you don't want to do in an interview. You're trying not to lead them you may have certain biases or maybe almost unconsciously you think the solution is X, Y, or Z. Are there some things you avoid when you're interviewing your users?
0: Yeah. So for the first like half of this interview, we've been talking about general strategy and stuff like that. But um, strategy is nice, but then you got to go out and talk to people. And talking to people is hard. The best advice that I could give someone about things you want to do is you, you, want, you need to clear your mind and you need to have questions in advance of things you want to learn from them, even if those, they're, they're kind of broad. But once you get the person talking, you need to stay out of the way. If you are doing the majority of the talking in the interview, you're not doing it right. Um, you're supposed to set up the pins and let the user knock it down. So, avoiding bias is very, very important. You want to ask them types of questions uh, that are open-ended, and then you don't want to interject your opinions in there, because the really sweet spot in a user interview is when a user is telling you the absolute truth about something, and they're getting really excited about telling you their story and how a certain thing affects them. So, you know, you the, the really the the best advice to give people is to get it going and then get out of the way.
1: Exactly. Especially that type of interview where you want the blank slate every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've got to get out of the way. You've got to let them fill the chalkboard up with Mm -hmm. what their perspective is and allow yourself to be surprised Mm -hmm. by what they tell you. You're supposed to be like an opinionless person. (laughs) And, And, um,
0: and you cannot be frustrated by the things that they say. Yeah. Because users will usually tell you things that you don't want to hear or they're going to tell you about problems that you don't want to solve or um yeah, you, I I I would used to get really frustrated when people would say, well, no, that's not a problem. My problem is uh, YZ or no, uh, I this this solution is not something that that really it's helpful, it's something else. And uh until I got used to hearing that, it was kind of an uphill battle.
1: I totally understand that you have to be really sort of the agnostic there. Mm-hmm. Uh you've got to curb your confirmation bias. And I can imagine it is frustrating, especially when you may have already invested a bit of time in something where the user feedback is bearing out that uh this ain't working. So mm-hmm. yeah, I can imagine how difficult that is. And that becomes kind of complicated in our world. We live in an instructional design context. And for those of us who are from that walk of life, you'll know the term ADDIE. It's an acronym. All you need to know about it, all that I want to bring out is that the A and the D in the beginning of that word stand for analysis and design. But the dirty little secret is that those often get shortchanged. Like I said earlier, you know, the starter pistol goes off, we're pressured to start developing. So I imagine you you may meet resistance about even performing these interviews. How do you overcome objections to performing these user interviews? You know, I'm lucky in that the places where I've worked,
0: I haven't had many objections to them. But, you know, DAU, they, they really champion involving users. But there are some common objections to, to doing user interviews, and they often boil down to arrogance or people not wanting to be wrong or people just don't like uh, talking to other people. That's also another one. It is it's it is hard to speak to other people and to allow them to, you know, talk and say things that you don't want to hear. So, you know, objections do boil down to I don't want to be wrong. and. If you are wrong, then you shouldn't be building the thing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, that's one of them. The way I would handle it is I would say, look, we could spend six months and a lot of money on developing something and then it could fall completely flat. Or we could spend one week, do a little bit of user research, talk to 10 people,
1: and then find out whether or not we're on the right track. So it's their choice. And the worst and the most insulting for a designer mm-hmm. is when you're regarded as the make it pretty person. Yeah, like I, I don't. I gave you the content. Just you know, go go make it pretty. Go make mm-hmm. it. Which is it's really terrible. Where in actuality you're trying to understand function first, right, and then the form follows that, and it really does a disservice when people won't cooperate with that process because. Honestly, the prettiest thing is a thing that works. And that's what you're trying to get at.
0: Yeah. And with instructional design, it's a little bit different because if you are trying to teach a course on like agile or something like that, you got to think about what is the purpose of the course that you're teaching? Is it an overview of agile? Is it uh, agile for a very, very specific purpose? You got to really sort of understand what is the outcome that the stakeholder wants? And then go from there. So you can't always ask users everything. But when it comes to, if if you're trying to create a course, for example, uh, on how to do a specific job, then, yeah, you do need to do your user research for them.
1: You do. And we have that great advantage in instructional design where Mm -hmm. uh, we have measurable, we want to attain measurable things. There are performance Mm -hmm. outcomes. There are objectives that have been defined if we've done the job right and, and then you come in with what you're doing in creating a functional product. But in practical terms, how do you conduct these interviews? Is it something you can do by yourself or is it a team sport? Walk us through it.
0: Yeah. So there are a couple of different ways to do interviews. Um, so first of all, you have to have user acquisition, which means you got to get actual users who are representative of your user base. And, The the best way to do that is to get your stakeholders involved. Your stakeholders will usually be able to point you towards someone that can say, uh, yeah, you know, these three employees would be using your thing. So after you start off with that, a user interview usually consists of an interviewer and just the user, and that's it. If you want to do it the fancy user research way, it would be an interviewer and multiple note takers and the person that is being interviewed. And so kind of the way that it works is that I start off with uh, a lead for a user and then I will reach out to them and I'll just send them an email and say, hey, we are doing some research on this. We heard that you are the, the kind of person that will be using our product. And we'd like to just ask you a few questions. Do you have 30 minutes? And then um, I would get them on the phone and we would have an interview. And kind of the way that the user interviews work is that, I start off, I say, uh, hey, my name is Josh. Uh, we're doing research on X, Y, Z, and I just want to ask you a few questions. There are no wrong answers. Anything you say is not going to be attributed to you, and uh, that's it. And then I would start a- asking them you know, some uh, questions about whatever it is that we're doing, and then I'll just take notes on a-, a keyboard that doesn't make a whole lot of noise. And I'll write down very, very important things that they say, and and then we'll just go from there. And at the end of the interview, you'll say, "Hey, thank you very much. I might be reaching back to you um, if I've got follow-up questions." And and that's really it. So, following the user interview, what I do is I write down all the really important things that they say, and I put that on a sticky note. So each learning becomes one sticky note, and you can use tools like uh, Miro or Whimsical, or, or you know, there's plenty of online tools that can do this, and then. You put all the sticky notes on a board, and then you start to take all the stickies and you find ones that are similar and you group them together. And then suddenly, out of 10 user interviews, you could start to see where all of these people start to say converging things. And that is sort of the beginning of you really understanding the problem.
1: It sounds a little like uh, in Lean Speak, kind of a you're making a Kanban board
0: yeah so the correct word
1: if you want to if you want to google
0: this it's called an affinity diagram or affinity mapping
1: what is meant by that phrase affinity mapping it has
0: something to do with making sense of a lot of different things and that are somewhat interrelated so if you google stock photos of like agile you'll see people with a whiteboard and sticky notes that's kind of what they're doing
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we know what the word affinity means. I think that's all of our homework. So, uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of audience participation and, and host and guest, we'll, we'll, uh, give a a deeper dive after the the talk is over. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm relating it to lean practices where, yeah, sometimes you're filling up a huge board with post-it notes, you're organizing it. And that of course can be done digitally with uh, Miro, like you said. Uh, I've used tools like Trello where you can get that all organized and everything's like a little uh, post-it note. So Mm -hmm. very, very helpful. But speaking of lean, I've heard you use the phrase lean UX. Tell us a little about what that means.
0: So lean UX refers to what is the simplest way that we could solve this problem? At least that's, that's how I refer to it. So as a designer, you don't want to just come up with the, the fanciest, flashiest thing. You really need to start off with something simple that developers can begin to get working on. When you're trying to solve a problem, think about what is the easiest way to solve it. Maybe it's something like a PDF. Maybe it's something really simple or like an Excel spreadsheet. Maybe you start with that before you start off with developing an app, right? So it's really thinking about what is the simplest way that you could get the product over the finish line first, and then you can begin to iterate even further.
1: Yeah, this sounds very parallel. We, we hear a lot of Agile speak in our world. Mm-hmm. We hear about minimum viable product. Is this that iterative type of approach? Yeah,
0: I mean, I, I really want to, I'm really concerned a lot about getting products over the finish line rather than working on them forever because you need to get your product out quickly so that way you can get in learnings from users. So the faster you can get it in front of people, the better.
1: Exactly. I'm working on something right now. Just share an anecdote from my own workaday life. I'm helping us develop a course. It's an internal course. And the original plan was to have many videos along the way. We're doing them in an animatic fashion, which is an efficient way to do video Mm because it's not live video. It's a lot of desktop produced stuff. But walking it back from there in terms of that iterative release, I suggested, hey, you know, some of these are pretty simple steps. Do you think we could just make a like a PDF job aid? Mm-hmm. And then maybe later in a follow-up round, if we think we want the video, we can do that. And so I, that kind of set some light bulbs glowing a little brighter over the heads. And they realized... Oh wow! I don't. We don't have to sweat this debt because they have a tight deadline, mm-hmm. and they're thinking, "Wow, okay, we can do like you know two thirds of what we were planning, and a lot of this could be handled with job aids that could be um, put out as PDF." So, there's an example that just comes from something I'm working on right now, but I like that way of thinking because you never want to let the best be the enemy of the good enough. And not that we're not going for the professional ideal solution, but people need answers to their problems now. And and that's kind of the tension.
0: Yeah. I mean, you have to be a good steward of taxpayer dollars. Like, I mean, you might think that an app is cool, but if users are totally happy with an Excel spreadsheet, then give them the Excel spreadsheet and move on. You don't have to always be chasing some shiny object if, if users are already uh, doing well and, and, and the stakeholders are happy.
1: Yeah, that's a great example. I mean, you'll find if you were to ask a user, hey, I want to perform this task on the job. Would you like to be able to just kind of have something pinned on your wall next to you? Or do you want to go scrubbing through an eight minute video to find, right? (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, they're going to want something they can thumbtack to their cubicle wall, Mm -hmm. I would think. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, all of that bears out what's the function, what's the goal. And then you arrive at the solution, you arrive at the format, but it requires that user input. Josh, this is so helpful. I know a lot of people want to get started and learn more. Can you point our listeners to certain resources, uh, whatever they might be, that you can recommend?
0: Yeah. Definitely a book to read if you want to do user research is a book called Just Enough Research. And it's very good. And it talks about how to interview users, how to interview stakeholders how to start with a very, very broad problem and understand it better. Um, that's the first place to start. There is also a, a website for something called the NN Group, and they do a lot of user research. I believe if you Google that and you uh, you look up user research NN Group, you should be able to find a lot of really, really good resources because they give you very um, simple and tactical examples on how to conduct user interviews, how to observe users and things like that. So that's where I would definitely start.
1: Very helpful. I appreciate that. I'm sure the listeners do as well. Josh, thanks for taking time out. I think we all want to have good experiences in our everyday life. We're constantly Googling we're arriving, we want to get just what we need. And you're the kind of person that ensures that that happens quickly, efficiently, and and also in an enjoyable way. I think good design makes content enjoyable. So I thank you for what you've been doing for the university. And I hope this helps get the message out. All right. Thanks for having me on the show. Happy to have you, Josh. Might lure you back to the microphone in the future. So uh, be ready for that. But thank you for your time today thank you for listening to
0: catch up on all of our shows subscribe in itunes or stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts the learning circle is produced and distributed by the defense acquisition university